0: Hey
1: there, it is PNN, Sunday, June 20, 2021. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. I am of so many minds today. I want to change the name of this whole podcast, because progressive just isn't working for me anymore, so think of it as populist news. Think of it as a uh, poopy news. I don't care, but populace is just not working for me right now. I'll take that up at another time. Happy Father's Day. Tonight, we have Janine Maloff, Justice Report on Joe Manchin's corruption. That's going to be a long segment because corruption is vast. And we also have founder of the show rick spizak in conversation with stacy lee sherwood on turtles in florida nesting turtles uh this is actually that makes it sound kind of boutique or whatever this is a big damn issue in florida and it deserves a hell of a lot more attention and uh of course the desantis uh, administration is making all the wrong moves. This is the kind of thing that will piss off everybody who lives on the coast uh, because we all know, we all know, if you grew up on the coast, you know that there are certain things you don't do. Uh, you don't shine bright lights towards the ocean, you know, that will draw the baby turtles out towards them. It'll confuse the uh, nesting uh, adults and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, so there's just, Bottomless, disgusting stuff coming from DeSantis. And uh, a really good article this week in the Florida Squeeze, Carter uh, Krishnayer addresses the failure of Florida Democrats uh, with regard to Ron DeSantis. And uh, he talks about how that has fed his Machiavellian success. And I really like I really like this piece. I'm going to throw a link down in the show notes so that everybody can see it. The Florida Squeeze has also started a Patreon, which uh, I belong to, and it's really cool because Kartik is doing a lot of really interesting stuff in and around Florida. He's going out to uh, a lot of the the kind of like secondary and tertiary uh, natural areas and providing reporting from that and also of course providing lots of interesting tidbits about history and then every once in a while you just see he'll just throw up a a a wonderful old you know like citrus label or something like that from the 1930s is so cool his patreon really rocks and I'm going to get some content up there because I have a lot to say about these uh you know kind of secondary natural spots to go check out in central Florida and he's really got it uh, nailed down in South Florida and he just did a bunch of research up in the St. Augustine area and posted a bunch about that. So go check that out. And then this story about, you know, how it, 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 Democrats are in Florida are basically enabling Ron DeSantis at this point. Uh, we cannot keep going with this culture war uh leading and and using culture war as our only arrow in our quiver because it is doing nothing but empowering the republicans okay and uh and I tell you what, if we put Nikki Freed up against Ron DeSantis uh, for governor, that's, that's going to be a big disaster. So uh, I do not care for Charlie Crist in terms of a, uh, a a person in the Democratic Party that I would, you know, lend time or effort to. But between the two, Nikki Freed and Charlie Crist, Charlie Crist can actually get elected. Nikki Freed cannot and uh, I encourage you to dig into some of the problems with Nikki Freed because they are staggering just absolutely staggering okay give me a moment we're going to come right back with uh, my segment which is a little riff little thing I want to share with you guys about Father's Day be right back And that was fast. Okay, so I wrote this piece. It's in, my, it's in my sub stack. I'll put a note, a little citation down in the show notes as usual. Father's Day adoptee edition. Uh, I noticed this week that 23andMe was having their annual Father's Day sale, which that's kind of tricky for a lot of people, not just adoptees. All right. Um you know maybe maybe just maybe uh you might want to ask around before you start, you know, handing out 23 and me kits or, you know, for for the whole family for Christmas because that could be really awkward in some families. And that's okay, yeah. You know? But um, you know, just just beware. Uh, I happen to like 23 and me for health reasons. I took my information from 23 and me. Uh, and took it to a, a health consultant at a site called Genetic Life Hacks. Uh, there's a link to that in the story that I'm sharing. And uh, they were able to give some extremely detailed information about um, Uh, genetic propensities to different kinds of health issues. So that's the kind of thing that I find really helpful. And and to be honest, as an adoptee, that was the kind of thing that I wanted to, you know, if I had ever had the opportunity to uh, say hello to my biological father, that was something that I wanted to bring up. Like, hey, uh, so do you guys have any of this weird, shit in your family that I experience? You know, just to just to kind of see it. or or uh do you have other things that I need to know about maybe that I'm not experiencing and maybe should look out for in the future? Those kind of things, you know. Uh, so a few years ago, a, a friend of mine on Facebook, and I don't do Facebook anymore, so if you're looking for me on Facebook, stop looking for me on Facebook, um, but a friend of mine on Facebook a few years ago posted this big, you know, celebration. She found her biological father and her biological father and her adopted father just like best buddies now and blah, 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 you know, the 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 whole Instagram, you know, kind of, uh, Uh, white woman Instagram situation that you might imagine from that. And I was like, "Ah, that's that's great, you know, but uh, that's not going to be everyone's experience with doing these genetic tests and finding family members. Now she did both 23andMe and Ancestry and uh, was able through a comparison and some networking to find that biological father and, uh, and clearly he was receptive to being, uh, contacted. Now that was not my experience. So, it, and I wonder, you know, we all wonder what happens and what goes on, you know, when, when things get, uh, go sideways. So I would love to have known the, uh, the story behind that, but, but, but here's my origin story. In May 1966, my grandmother gets a phone call from the hospital. And she says, uh, that the, uh, the person on the other end of the phone says, uh, you got to come and pick up your daughter, your baby. And my grandmother says, I, I don't have a baby. I don't have a daughter. And, she, and they said, well, you do now. <laughs> so. What had happened was my biological mother, who gave birth to me, gave birth to me, and then split that popsicle joint left and hitchhiked to supposedly to Illinois, where uh, the um, father was and i I don 't know she was wrapped up in this guy, she was also we'll talk about this in a second. there were other issues going on um. Generally, when people are adopted by their grandparents, it is because the parents fucked up somehow. There is no scenario where you wind up adopted by your grandparents where it's like, oh, happy day. Yeah, this everything was great. They just loved you so much that they took you in. No, no, that's not... That is not how it happens. It is the. If you saw Mayor of Easttown, I totally related to what was going on through that whole show. I, I mean, right down to the part where Kate Winslet's character uh, tries to plant drugs on the um, biological mom's possession so that she wouldn't get custody of the of the child. Uh, you know, the the story there is that. And the biological mom was a really bad addict and 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 you see that when you watch the the whole series. Everyone was saying, "Oh my God, Kate Winslet is going to do something in this episode that is so ethically wrong that no one can can relate to it and I watched it, and I was like, "No, I' totally get that you know uh the way that I was adopted uh when I was four years old, I was legally adopted at four years old. It took four years. So it was a four-year battle for, uh, for my biological mother to finally realize that, A, she was uh, completely unable to take care of a child, and B, had no freaking interest in it at all. Um, she had other things going on. She had addictions. She had... Uh, things that go along with addictions i think you know just ocd chasing after other stuff but we're going to get to that she she was a a kind of a special person um as a kid who grew up without their father i i was confronted with this fairy tale story over and over again you should go look up your you should find him because if you find him, you know, he's going to be so glad you found him. And it's going to be like a great reunion and stuff. And uh, yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, and it's and it's not going to happen for everybody who does it. That's just the way it is, you know. Um, and I guess what I want to say on Father's Day, uh, this Father's Day, and this is the message that I've been uh, waiting to share with uh, with. Y'all and, you know, adoptees and and anybody who needs to hear this, consider, just consider this, maybe that other family doesn't deserve you. Maybe they're a bunch of assholes and morons, and if they really had an interest in you they would have looked you up in the 20 30 or 40 years you know before you would already know right um that's the way i see this now if you're someone who isn't who is adopted and you're really attached to this idea please do it go follow your dreams climb every mountain spit in all the test tubes go find that family but do not be surprised if when you find them, you know, maybe it's the reception you didn't expect. And or maybe you find a bunch of people where you're like, oh, yeah, never mind. Never mind. My adopted family had told me over and over again. This is what my my adopted mother had said over and over again. She said that she had given my biological father, she had given him the money to take a bus out of town to just split. And, uh, and she said further that the reason for that was that my biological mother was just too screwed up and it wasn't ever going to work. Okay. So that was a story that I got for many years. That story would enlarge later as I got older to, well, He had to go back to his mother, Uh, his mother, his mother's sense of propriety wouldn't allow for uh, you you to exist in their orbit. You know, it's a nice way of saying that uh, his his mother was a snooty asshole and uh, and he was too weak and or disinterested to, you know, deal with her you know so he got on that bus he went back up to uh illinois and uh you know so as a kid i'm like uh you know you're constantly wondering you know like well what it, especially when especially when this other family that adopted you especially when they're like a little weird themselves you kind of want you want to believe that you got some genes from someone else that isn't like the genes that you see in front of you so so my family was a little bit screwed up my My mother, my biological mother, beautiful woman, copper, naturally copper red hair when I was my my youngest memories of her she's got this this copper red hair in a beehive and she's wearing go go boots, and she's just amazing she's just this exotic creature that you know i the kind of people that you see, you saw on television she was skinny she did theater she was a genius an absolute freaking genius um but she wasn't the good kind of genius she was the troubled kind of genius she uh chain smoked lark cigarettes she wore drugstore perfume called uh, heaven sent and i will never get that mixture of cigarette smoke and heaven scent. Uh, Dime store cologne I will never get that out of my head Like to this day That will just transport me Just right back She didn't ever disappear Because she was somebody who was screwed up Uh, My adopted mother Was my grandmother That's her mother So when I was adopted by her That made me and my biological mother Sisters on paper And really, we were kind of, if you think about it, if you think of the functionality of a family, uh, we operated as sisters because I then had the parental experience. I had much the same parental experience that she had, only with me, uh, the mother had a little bit more experience because she had already uh, had two kids, and they had grown up and gone away or whatever. Uh, So she had some experience. I don't think that she was as awful with me as she had been with the other kids back in the fifties and sixties, but um, but she had her difficulties for sure. And the women in my family, uh, you know, and, and I only know, you know, like I said, I only know the matrilinear, Side of the family. So I know my biological mother, and I know my biological grandparents, and I know a bit about my biological grandparents' parents, all right? So so I've got that part of the story. Um, looking around at that part of the story, <laughs> uh, there is a lot of of just nutty, crazy people. Part of the reason for that is is there's a lot of smart people, there's a lot of geniuses, and there's a lot of trouble geniuses, and there's a lot of people who, because of uh, reasons of class, weren't able to achieve the things that they wanted to achieve, so you have a lot of um, frustrated, you know, writers and stuff like that. My grandfather's cousin was James Joyce, so there's a little bit of this, you know, uh, everybody needs to write, and everybody needs to read all the classics, and you know you have to read Ulysses and you have to be able to talk about these things at the table. That 's how I grew up. Um, and I knew I knew, growing up, that these guys were not normal. I was not in a normal family. So I wanted that DNA that I didn't know, that family that I didn't know. I wanted that DNA more than anything to be stable, reasonable, non-crazy people. And I, th- I think maybe, maybe they were at least non-crazy. Um, you know, I would ask all the time, what What was my dad like? You know, what was he like? What did he look like? And uh, my mother, my adoptive mother, who I call mother, uh, said, uh, well, you have the same curl of hair on your forehead. I have curly, fine hair. Uh, nobody else in the family has fine, curly, light colored hair. They have stick straight, heavy, coarse, you know, that kind of hair that you can do anything to um, and will grow long and stuff. And I I don't, that's not what I have. I have totally different genes when it comes to that. So I've got the, she's like, oh, you got the curl in your hand. And, and, and he was fat. (laughs) And I was like, great, 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 great. Everybody in my family was skinny. Everybody, I look around, everybody was skinny but i was this little, you know, chunky kid. And uh and uh the adopted mother was just of a generation and just of a time where uh it was very important. It was super important to have a uh, a certain kind of body, a kind of sh- a certain shape of body, and i guarantee you that of the time, if we were out anywhere, at a grocery store, a department store, whatever we were doing, my mother, my grandmother, was commenting on how other women looked. You know, I wouldn't wear that. Uh, She's too heavy for that. That blouse is cut too short. That blouse should be cut better, you know, on and on and on and on. You know how women are. She was of the generation where there was just a lot of that and there was a lot of, you know, you've got to fit into this certain very narrowly defined uh, ideal body shape. And I was never going to be that. Just, you know, right out of the gate. I came out of the gate with broad shoulders and Stubby little fingers and stubby little toes, and I was never going to be that. And so they would say, "Well, that's your father. That's your father's, you know, genes expressing because he was, he was fat." But that was all, you know, that was really all I knew. They, they, they didn't have much more, you know, that they were going to, uh, that they were going to tell me. Um, another thing that you wonder growing up is uh, where did your name come from? So my name, my full name is Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y, Brooke, without any E, B-R-O-O-K. A lot of people think that that spelling of Brooke is masculine, uh, including every homeroom I was ever in in elementary school put me on the boys roster. It's not. It turns out it's the Irish spelling, and the English spelling has the E, so... Um, Carrie Brooke. And, uh, and I thought, Oh, yeah, well, so the family is Irish, you know, the whole James Joyce thing, probably has something to do with that. Well, I got to ask my biological mom where that name came from. Finally got to ask her She it was it was right before she passed away. And I was I was helping her move. Uh, from one place to another and helping her box some things up. And and, um, I broached a couple of subjects with her. I asked her, you know, where my my name came from. And she gets this look on her face. And it was, she did this sometimes. And it was almost like she went to another place and she said, they were the best pair of shoes I ever had. They were so cool. And I was like, "What? What, what are we talking about? Uh, my name? My name was a pair of shoes?" And she was like, "Yeah, it was. It, 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 they were the best shoes I ever had. They were just so cool." And it was like fireworks went off in my brain because uh, back in high school, back when I was doing. Yeah, uh, I was doing vintage clothes. So I was going to like, you know, like junk stores all over the place, out in the mountains and Gate City and, uh, and and up in East Tennessee. And I was actually in Gate City, Virginia at a Goodwill. It's either Goodwill or Salvation Army. And I found this sweater, this white sweater. So it was so cool, perfect to wear with anything. It had like Angora in it and had a uh, a, a broad neckline with fake pearls and rhinestones and it was just you know one of those just perfect 50s you know great with a with a full skirt kind of thing and I wore the shit out of that and it had a tag in it that said Carrie Brooke. Carrie Brooke was embroidered into this tag in gold thread on on, on a white label and I could just kill myself for not keeping that label like I I, I had You know, by the time I wore that shirt for a a sweater for a few years in college, I was, you know, wasn't worth wearing anymore. I'd, you know, you know how it is. Um, But I should have kept that label because I've got cigar boxes all over the place with all kinds of just debris from my college years, like. Chick tracks, chick religious tracks and, you know, little plastic figurines and, uh, you know, crazy little balls that um, uh, are super bouncy, you know, things like that just collected into these little cigar boxes. And I could have thrown that little label into one of those cigar boxes and it wouldn't have been a big deal. I could have done it, but I didn't. So, so I could kick myself, right? But so I was named after a pair of shoes, and it's a damn good thing she wasn't wearing Birkenstocks that day. Here's where, here's how it works out in my brain. I'm imagining a very pregnant woman, uh, you know, uh, water's broke. She's at the hospital. They're giving her the paperwork to fill out, and she's leaning on the counter, and she's, you know, just filling it out, filling it out, filling it out. And, you know, it gets down to, you know, what do you, what's the baby's name going to be? And I imagine her getting stuck on that question. (laughs) And you know how you are when you're like standing at a counter and you just want to get done with things, you know. And I can imagine her kicking off her shoe, you know, and just putting her foot on the cold tile floor. And looking at the label in her shoe and it says Terry Brooke. And swear to God. I am going with that. That is how she named me. I think she got stuck on a question. <laughs> Looked down at her foot and there it was. And, you know, another thing I got to ask her before she died was that uh, um, I, I, I did not actually ask for this. I just I made a comment and it came out. Um, she had flawless skin. You know, I do not have flawless skin. She had flawless skin. Uh, right up until she passed away, just gorgeous, beautiful, no wrinkles, amazing skin. And for somebody who lived as hard as she did, like I, you would expect a lot more wear and tear. Nope. Nope. Just perfect. And uh, I said, you know, I was complimenting her skin and I was like, I guess I got, I guess I got the father's skin, you know? And she, she, kind of cocks her head back and cackles and he says his face was like a topological map of dresden and she says it like that you know she has this like dramatic way of like throwing things out and i was just like great yep those uh, got those genes definitely definitely got those genes and let me just say this i am not complaining uh i love my name i think it's musical it works for me um there are plenty of things that I love about my skin and I love about my body shape that I would never freaking change. That's all fine. And the trade-off here is that for all of the crazy people in my family, for, the, for all of the OCD and the, and, and the weird uh, behaviors and, and, and the uh, unpredictableness, I'm the one who got the groundedness and so for that that is a trade off i'm going to take that trade off i like that one uh talking around it but you know biological mom i think if, i think if she were around today uh people would say that she was maybe borderline you know and it, it, people self medicate when they're um uh, w- when there's mental illness, and and I think that the addictions were a manifestation of this uh, psychological situation she had going on. It definitely, the cigarette smoking, the chain smoking that she did, was uh, that's one of that's one, that's something that people who have some degree of mental illness will um it's not the only reason people smoke honest to god i smoke i definitely inherited that addiction to her but it's the only one thank god um but uh but she was one of those kind of smokers like would light one off of the uh butt of the last one like that kind of smoker now she my mother my my when i say my mother i'm talking about my grandmother uh Mother, she worked her entire life to try and provide stability for my biological mother. She bought one piece of property after another, one house after another, one duplex after another, just kept buying them, trying to keep Joyce, my biological mother, in some kind of stable place. So by the time my uh, adopted father, my grandfather, had a giant heart attack at 74 and couldn't work anymore, they had they had acquired a handful of properties that they sold off, and that became the only money that they had to live on until they died. And they it's uh, 70s, 80s, 90s. They lived 30 more years. So you know they that was not a lot of money to live on. We, I grew up very, very poor. Uh, In in 1974, I would have been eight years old. And so that's when, that's when everything kind of came crashing down. And uh, uh, my biological mother had to come back and live with us uh, and share, you know, help out the family by sharing food stamps and aid to families with dependent children, AFDC, which was, uh, welfare back then. Um, welfare doesn't exist anymore, by the way. It's a, it, it's a temporary, and it doesn't um, provide what it used to. But back then, if you were really, really smart, and everyone pulled together, you could make it work. And they and they did. They they made it work, and they had a little bit of rental income coming in. You. So you might say that being adopted um, could be problematic for children growing up, right? Uh, maybe it's better that, that children are with their biological parents, and I would argue against that, at least in my case. If your parents are mentally ill, if your parents are addicts, you children do not need to be in those Circumstances, they're much better off with grandparents. They're much better off uh, adopted, uh, e- even to people that, that uh, you know, through an adoption agency or something like that. Um, having grown up and seen the way that life went for my biological mother, uh, I can say for certain that I really got the better end of the stick. With with all of that, now one of the things though that made this arrangement ideal, you know, one of the one of the reasons why there was there was some connection here, was because my grandmother was also an orphan. My grandmother had been orphaned in 1926 after the Great Hurricane. Her family had four children, three sisters and a son and after the hurricane wiped out their house they lost everything the mother and father kept the son and put the three girls in different agencies of of being an orphan so one went to a convent one uh, my grandmother was the oldest and she worked uh she became a, a ward of the state at 12 years old, worked in uh, the mansions in West Palm Beach. She worked for the uh, for Rose Kennedy at the Kennedy compound. Um, and the other sister went to an orphanage. They weren't kept together. Uh, this caused a, a a lot of trouble. But as I was growing up, my grandmother's experience of being orphaned and my experience of being orphaned aligned like there was a decent alignment there she kind of understood some of the things that I was going through and I kind of understood where she came from with a lot of stuff not all of it I think that things got a lot darker for her than they did for me um but so she was very keen to make sure that some of those darker things didn't happen to me um as a as someone's Grandparents, you know, I was born in '66, so my grandparents were of the age that they lived through the Great Depression, and this is uh, this is kind of another thing I think that was uh, kind of fun and interesting for a kid is growing up with with parents from the Great Depression because my mother had all of these different crazy ways of surviving. That, um, that today you would have to, you know, find, you, you would have to go to people who are, uh, back when people followed the dead, you know, just with that kind of stuff. My mother taught me how to dumpster dive. She taught me how to, uh, uh, charm, charm a fish off of people at the jetty. When we didn't have anything to eat, she would go down to Sebastian Inlet and, uh, you know just start talking up the guys who were having a good day a good catch and we'd come home with a giant kingfish that was that was the way she rolled man she was she was hilarious um so you might kind of glean that was kind of a a chaotic home um But through all of that, I never really had this pining to go find my biological family. I was always grounded in this belief that, you know, who I am, I'm just going to freaking accept it. Nobody around me looks like me. That's okay. I'm me. Uh, Nobody around me is telling me the truth about where I came from or anything. And that's fine. That's fine. That just becomes part of the story. Uh, never really cared about any of this until I met my current husband and we just had we just had Father's Day over at his parents house and it was so much fun and it's just so cool you know just like a real family that uh, there's no divorce there's no mental illness it's just like a real family doing real family stuff with like grandkids and all that sort of thing and uh, so he really wanted for me to be able to have that moment with my estranged father so it kind of went about you know trying to find out some stuff about him we knew his name we knew where he lived uh, about um and uh my aunt started sending me clippings from ancestry.com all these like clippings about him uh, apparently he had been a banjo player when when he met my biological mother what what the fuck who runs off with the banjo player first of all um he uh he uh was known for his work with the mandolin and the dobro and i found out that he was in the same circles as people that uh i knew working in bluegrass in a bluegrass club in East Tennessee, just really bizarre to see, you know, mutual friends that he knew on Facebook. Um, there is a picture of him in a van in like a orange colored or rust colored van playing a bongo drum at the time when I would have been in the third grade. And I get stuck on this picture sometimes. And I look at it and I think –
0: What
1: imagine when I was in the third grade, what I was doing, I was on swim team and I had girl scouts and I did all of that little, you know, kid stuff. And, and, and I had this grandmother who was, you know, fastidious in taking me to all of these different things and doing stuff with me. And I see this guy in a van playing a bongo drum and I think, man, I dodged a bullet there. Just freaking dodged a bullet. This is clearly, this is a photo of someone who was not prepared to be a father and had no interest in it um, and probably didn't have the maturity level for it. One of the things that happens when you're on 23andMe is you see the other relatives. So you see the half brothers and you see the cousins and you see people, all these people around the person who never returned your call or never returned your email or never returned your Facebook message. You know, because we reached out to them just to say hello. We reached out. Got nothing. Um, so here's what I want to say. And I think this is really important. Uh. If you're an adoptee and your instinct tells you that it doesn't matter that you're just fine, you're right. You're right. You are good. You are good enough without, you know, anything else. You don't need anything else. If you're an adoptee and your instinct tells you, you should search. Okay. You're probably right to go for it. Uh, but no, Please know that whatever answer you get, you will never change the fact that the people who are really your family are the ones who loved you as a child and put up with your shit as a teenager. Everything else is DNA, and it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. That DNA, you can find out what you need to find out about your DNA from genetic life hacks. I'll just leave a link to that in the show notes too. Uh, So this Father's Day, like all Father's Day, uh, that's going to be a source of mixed emotion, no matter what kind of family you're at. There's always going to be that family stuff going on. Um, If you're adopted, you already know who your family is. Don't let Father's Day trip you up because it's all fucking okay.
2: Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome longtime environmental activist Stacy Lee Sherwood. La- Stacy, welcome. You want to talk to us about some changes the state has recently made in a long-time existing program to protect turtles. Stacy, what do we need to know about the turtle situation?
3: Well, Richard, uh, first, thank you for having me on the show. And gosh, there's so many atrocities that SWC is doing, uh, you know, starving the manatees, poisoning our water. Uh, hunting endangered ropers. It's hard to keep up with all of them but the latest atrocity that was um, mentioned in the Sun Sentinel on ABC News is that FWC wants to kick off unpaid but highly trained volunteers who are out there rescuing endangered sea turtles. I know it just it sounds insane. Um, Just a quick little backstory because I've been involved with this since 2008. Uh, back in 2007, Richard is in White Cloud, we're on the beach, they saw a nest hatch out, a bunch of turtles scattered, none of them went to the water. They picked them up, put them in the water, saved them. end of story. In 2010, there were maybe 20 of us uh, in this group that we had kind of loosely formed, we didn't really have a name or anything, and Richard got his first permit from FWC. Uh, Megan Kopersky, by the way, she's responsible for this latest boondoggle. She's the one that signs off on all the permits. Robin Schwindel up in Tallahassee is the one that runs the sea turtle programs for the whole state. So she's also bears some responsibility as well. Uh, So in 2010, we started out, and over the years, we got a few more permits. Some were for stranding. Um, They did some educational outreach, and they planted sea oats. We had, I guess, maybe give or take 150 or so, quote, people on the permit. As you know, uh, anytime you have people involved in a group, there's always a few that never show up. There are some that show up all the time and some that show up periodically. So the first slide, when FWC says there's like 100 people on the beach, uh, they're thinking tourists and residents. In the 15 years I've been involved with this, there's never been 100 volunteers on the beach. I would have loved that. Um, at any given time, maybe 20 or 30, spread out throughout the entire county of Broward, which is like over 20 miles. Hardly anyone in Deerfield, hardly anyone in North Pompton or Hollywood, It's mostly concentrated in Fort Lauderdale and Little dill by the So that's the first slide that FWC says, there's all these people. Uh, number two, we're highly trained. Uh, we're also trained by FWC. They come out and they, originally when we started the program, they would monitor us. So they know exactly what's going on We are not the ones that are harassing the moms. We are the ones telling people not to go near a nesting mom and to turn off your flashlight so they don't get disorientated. So that's a whole other lie. That's just an excuse to, you know, to cover their butt. So things were kind of uh, contentious, as you can say, between Sea Turtle Oversight Protection and FWCA for a few years, but we managed to kind of trudge along. Uh, then in 2015, actually 20, I believe it was 2014, um, South Florida Audubon, run by Doug, for some reason got a permit um, to run a quote turtle rescue group to compete with Richard. They ended up being more trouble than they're worth, unfortunately. In 2015, Doug caused a shooting of a homeless person <laughs> on the beach in July in Gulf Ocean Mile, which is just south of Lotusville by the sea. At the time, we asked Megan Kopersky up in Tequesta to pull his permit. I mean, that should have been a done issue, aside from the fact that all the people on his permit, hardly any of them showed up. And like I said, we consider them not much more than a warm body. Uh, but bringing a gun to a beach and then shooting someone, I mean, come on. Uh, but Megan refused to pull the permit and instead gave Doug another permit. I, there was a whole hearing, and one of the by the sea with a lot of law enforcement, but nothing ever was done. So so this this did not just happen out of nowhere. This has kind of been steaming along over the years. I believe part of it is Megan is trying to cover a litany of mistakes that she has made all along. Um, but the notion that you're going to kick off people working for free, saving basically newborn endangered species, is the most insane and ludicrous thing SWC has done in a long, long list of things that they, that they have done. Um, another thing that they have done that also surrounds, and I'm going to get to like the main crux of the issue in a second, um, is when they talk about uh, the sea turtle has like a sustainable population. They only count the number of nests laid, but a lot of those nests get washed out, a lot of them don't actually hatch, a lot of them are mismarked because I also did The morning program, where we would go out and mark the nest. So I have 10 years of experience knowing that not every marked nest is a nest. It's not always fruitful. Um, So they, they only count that. And turtles do not nest every year. You know, they nest every other year, every couple of years, depending upon weather and a whole litany of things. So you normally have like a up and down flow. So to look at a couple of up years and go, oh my gosh, they're increasing is again fraudulent Uh, information. It's it's not science based on anything. We've also only had green sea turtles nesting really since the 80s and they have been increasing incrementally. But that's because beforehand Florida had actually killed them off. They were functionally extinct in Florida because they kept eating them and hunting them. And in fact in Florida you could still openly eat green turtles and turtle soup long after they were listed on the endangered species list in 1978. So that's kind of a little history of where that number comes from. The, the real issue, of course, is how many of the hatchlings come out of the nest and make it to the water, and that is where the numbers from FWC are completely fraudulent, uh, total lie, total BS, if you will, because let's say just in Broward County, because Broward County is the only place that they actually do a nighttime rescue so we can actually see how many nests. How many hatched, how many disorientated, or with witnesses, so to speak. So Broward County has, on average, about, say, 3,500 nests, give or take. And let's say, give or take, 3,000 of those actually hatch, right? And, of course, they're all kind of variables. Some hatch, you know, 100%, some hatch 50%. But let's just take average to make it simple. So of those 3,000 nests, let's say you have about 120 eggs, of which maybe 100 actually hatch. We know this from when we I would excavate the nest and we would count out how many shells have been hatched. That's the number that FWC counts, the hatched eggs. They don't factor in how many of those hatched eggs actually meant a turtle made it to the water. Because in Broward County, the disorientation rate, which is in simple terms, death by light pollution, um, the turtle comes out, it looks for the bright light, the ocean is dark, and the west side is just illuminated, you know, sky glow, indoor light, external light, people with cell phones on the beach. So they, they crawl west, north and south, basically anywhere but, but east. So of those 100 eggs that have hatched, only about uh, 20 make it to the ocean, leaving 80 that basically would die if they weren't picked up and put in the ocean. That's where we're at. That's not the number that SWC admits to. That's not the number they ever factor in because you cannot sustain a population if only 20% is you know surviving to the ocean. Um, if 80% are dying without your immediate rescue, you're gonna crash that species. In Dade County, gosh, I don't even think any of the turtles make it to the ocean. Um, there's just so much lighting and no one's down there to rescue them. Of course, they have a lot less nests, but in Palm Beach County, lighting, especially like on the on um, A1A in Delray and other places, Palm Beach, the lighting is just as bad, there's hardly any enforcement, and they get three times as many nests. So a simple math equation, just focusing on Broward and why this is just beyond cruel and insane is if you were to take the 3,000 hatch nets and you would to time that by the 80 sea turtle hatchlings that would die without rescue. In one season, that will come to about 240,000 hatchlings that would die. If you time that over Palm Beach County and, Brow- and um, Martin County and Pinellas, which has terrible lighting disorientation, then you're talking about hundreds of thousands of sea trail hatchlings that we know for a fact. We can prove this if you just look at the data. Now, according to Richard's own data, he said that stuff, because in the beginning we didn't keep records of how many, you know, there were so few of us and everything was handwritten, you know, two o'clock in the morning you don't always fill out a form. So we didn't fill out the disorientation forms in the beginning um, like we had in later years. So he said about 260,000 stock has rescued in about the last 10 years. I would say probably more than that, um, maybe 280,000. You know, but you can you can see quite a lot. But here's the kicker: if you take the 260,000 hatchlings that stock has saved from death in 10,000 years, and you divide it by 10 years, that's only 26,000 hatchlings per year. But if 240,000 could potentially die, and we know a ton of them do. We're talking what saving 10 or 12 percent. See, that's you can't a species cannot survive. So the idea that the rescue is not helping, um, we are basically slowing down extinction. We need, to have res- we need to have more people doing rescue, and we need to have more people doing rescue throughout the state, because we would come out at night and we would see trash all over the place. Now, I can tell you from all the years I worked uh, for the morning survey in Highland Beach, which was a private beach uh, and really dark, and the police and the residents and our turtle group, we all worked together, so the lights were out, the residents actually loved the turtles, so it kind of worked. I would get a hatch nest, and those tracks would go straight to the ocean, literally in a straight line. The width of the tracks was like this. I go to Broward County, it's like this. It's not even a triangle. It's like a, a semicircle. That's light disorientation. And you can't assume that they all go to the water. Now, in theory, those of us who were on the – Permits to do the morning survey are supposed to record disorientation. Of course after the fact it's kind of hard but you can get an idea if you've lost a whole nest or you know you can trace, trace some of the tracks that they went to the dunes or what have you. But a lot of people, most people just don't do it. Um, partly because they know FWC does not pay attention to those forms. They probably literally just put them in the shredder. Uh, they don't force, enforce anything about lighting. They don't educate the public. If anything, They act as a cover to the residents uh, who have the lights on. We know this because, like I said, if you look at those numbers, we know that um, the rescue groups in Broward County have sent in probably tens of thousands of disorientation forms over the last 10 years. So much so that I can tell you that in Lauderdale by the Sea, there's a building called Cranecrest. That building alone Probably killed hundred thousand turtles. I mean the whole side is lit up like a Christmas tree every night. And it's not just the one, the nest right in front of the building. You know the light can be seen from a nest half a mile away and still the turtles gravitate toward that. I would send in literally nightly reports on this one building for years. Now factor that, you've seen the beach in Florida, you know, you know the horror. Now imagine every building in most of the counties for 10 years. I mean, it boggles it boggles the mind, right? So why Megan and Robin would, would do this, I have no idea. Um, the guy, Ron Casis, who issued the press release, he's just some government lackey up in Tallahassee or Gainesville. I even think he knows what a sea turtle is, but he certainly hasn't rescued any. I can tell you, nobody that works with sea turtles up in the offices, you know, Tallahassee and Gainesville. They've never been on the beach. They've never rescued a sea turtle. They don't do anything to conserve uh, the species, even if hypothetically. So they lie when they say they're going to suddenly enforce the lighting laws. Please. They haven't in decades. Why would they suddenly do that now? Richard, you know it's BS, right? You know Florida. Um, But aside from that, even if hypothetically you have like 100% compliance, that's only external light of the buildings on the beach. That's not interior light. That's not people walking on the beach with a cell phone or a flashlight. That's not sky glow, you know, with that orange, that famous orange glow, Fort Lauderdale. Okay. Um, that's also not street lights, which can be very bright. Uh, in some areas of the beach, a car can come up with the bright headlights, sit there and chit-chat all night long. Okay. So you're t- talking about actually a very small amount of lighting that actually could be enforced from these ordinances. So even if FWC miraculously did something, you would still have a huge amount of disorientation. Maybe not eighty percent, maybe fifty or sixty percent. But with those kinds of numbers, you can't survive with with that many newborn turtles dying. You know, they basically just follow the light until they run out of steam and and die, or end up in a drain ditch, or hit by a car, or you know, eaten by a raccoon or fox or something. Um, so it can also be a very gruesome death. The
2: point is... You. Okay, I was going to
3: yeah. ask you a question, but uh, go ahead, finish your point. Uh, I just, I just want to say, so knowing all of this, not only is it insane that they're trying to remove the, 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 the people doing the rescue, but the only way to really save a species is to go back to having hatcheries, which ironically they did have some hatcheries, and that would that would pretty much solve the lighting problem. You know, indoor hatcheries, that SWC would never have to hear about. <laughs> but hatcheries like throughout the state, not just our County, they'd never have to hear or get, you know, stacks and stacks and stacks of forms complaining about the lights. Um, they would never have to send out these phony fake, you know, press releases that they're doing something. But it would also benefit the turtles, not just because of the light, but because we could control the temperature much like my AC is controlling the temperature and keeping me cool. Um, there were studies that have been done, not just in Florida, but a couple of years ago, a study was done in, in Boca, where the sand is so hot that it's only creating females. But if you only have females and not enough males, the species is not gonna survive as well. So my point is they need to keep the rescue people going and then work towards putting back the hatcheries which would be a boon to our economy, because think of all the people that would be working there. High-paid jobs, security. You could have, like, tourists coming in. I mean, it would, be, it would be great for everything. Why they wouldn't do such a thing, you'd have to ask Robin and Megan and the commissioners, all of whom are developers. And that's another issue, too. Now, let me ask you this. Uh,
2: yeah. I have seen FWC at its ugly worst. I've seen them say that having drilling in the Everglades wouldn't and thumpers wouldn't bother panthers, although anybody who's ever met a cat knows that loud noises completely drive them crazy. Uh, I've seen them look the other way at all kinds of pollution. Goodness knows the crime that is Lake Okeechobee will be with Florida, even if they started doing something, which they have no intention of doing. So, exactly. So what... What, I mean, it's, it's sort of silly, but what is their excuse? Why do they want to get rid of people trying to help?
3: For two, for two reasons. And like I said at the beginning, it's not just the sea turtles. You know, they're starving the manatees. They're spraying poison in our drinking water. I mean, if I were to talk about the good things that they did, gosh, I don't think I'd have, I would need five seconds to talk. Um, but the, the, the long list. So so one of the reasons is the commissioners appointed by the governor, they're all hunters and developers. So so they have a vested interest in just literally paving over everything. And the thing is, if you get rid of all of the animals, then you no longer have an excuse to protect it. Um, Hard to imagine, Richard, there's any land to develop on the coast, but apparently there's a few little blades of glass they haven't haven't developed yet. Um, But that's one of the reasons. That you don't have any conservationists, and the commission—they're all there just, you know, to, to develop and to be a cover for polluters and the sugar industry and Mosaic. And you know, you're from Florida; you, you know all the players. Um, the other thing is the people that work there. Uh, you know what they say about people that work for the government—you <laughs> don't have the best. You just don't have the best of the best. You, re- you really don't. Um, I've dealt with them for 15 years for um, the Bear Massacre. Um, even last year, they refused. Uh, they said they didn't need a shark fin ban, which I believe the U.S. Senate just approved. But they said, oh, we don't need a shark fin ban. Not that they would do anything anyway. Um, they actually kind of close an eye to shark hunting and killing. Um, remember Michael Wenzel with the shark drag video when he you know, had been torturing animals on Instagram? and Okay, so they close an eye to that. So they have a long history of bending over for hunters. That's their whole game is they want to... Um, One of their commissioners, I can't remember her name, but she was a woman. She lives out in Collier County, and she wanted to allow hunting of the panther. She wanted to allow hunting of the panther. I remember when they were talking about the bear. I called it the bear massacre because that's what it was. And they thought that, you know, maybe a few dozen would be killed. You remember, in three days, they actually killed more bears than they had given permits to, including cubs. So they had to call it off, but only with public pressure, and only because of people like you who got the message out literally went all over the world. Of course, Florida is always making national news, but never for, never for anything good. Yeah, never for anything good. We're always doing something, you know, idiocracy. Um, so the commissioners are developers. Most of the people that work there are. As far as the people that work, um, the environmental specialists they just want to protect their job. They want to justify the grant money uh, like, like many professors at universities um, and look like they're doing something, but they don't actually want to do anything. If, if, if people like Megan and Robin actually wanted to protect sea turtles, they're just writing studies nobody reads, they would be on the beach yelling at people to turn off the lights, um, they'd be closing down beaches at nighttime. There's a variety of things that they would they would and could be doing. Instead, all they do is they, you know, write up studies that nobody ever reads and I can tell you words don't save anything, actions do. Okay. So so that's that's part of the systemic problem.
2: Let me ask you this.
3: For yes. people like us who
2: are concerned, who don't want to see this volunteer program and I mean why they would turn away volunteers it just blows my mind but yeah we understand what their bias is but what can we do can we should we write FWC should we write the our uh, the governor (laughs) Uh, should we write the legislature who do you suggest where's the pressure point that most might be most effective
3: actually um, I would recommend first people calling Megan Kopersky because she's the one who Signs off on the permits, and number one, she has to answer to why she allowed someone that caused the shooting to still have a permit, number one. And number two, why she actually, she already removed several of Richard's permits. He had five. Now he's down to two. And then unless something dramatically happened, nobody will have a permit next year. This was just for the rescue. So it would be Megan Kopersky and she's up in uh, Tequesta And her number is 561-575-5407. And I have a feeling if she was inundated with phone calls, I would say emails, but who knows if she would read them. Um, She has a lot to answer to, and she would be like the main main person. Um, The people giving out statements don't really, you know, they're just giving out statements. They don't really do anything. Um, the next person actually would be, assuming so you can get these people on the phone, and see, that's another game that they play, too. Sure. It is very hard to get anybody on the phone. Before you leave, um, before you leave Megan Capersi, what's her title? She's uh, technically an environmental specialist, uh, I think, Section 2 or something. Uh, I just know that she's the one that signs up on the permit. Because originally, and I believe it was, I think it was 2010, um, the first couple of years, it was Richard and Zinn and just a few of us, and we kind of, we made up the program on the beach. And then in 2010, uh, I guess FWC decided that Richard wanted to get a permit. So she came to the workshop class where Richard would kind of describe what you do when you go out on the beach and how you rescue, rescue the turtles. Um, so she's well aware of it, but she's never actually done the program or spent time on the beach. So she has no actual knowledge that when you're on the, like the you beach and it. they all scatter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that, they, that they all scatter. Um, that there's just, it's impossible to save them. Robin Trindell is technically the administrator for the entire c Turtle program. So she would oversee... Basically, anybody working with sea turtles. So that would be permits, not just for the rescue, but the morning surveys, strandings, taggings, all that kind of stuff. So she obviously knows what's going on. Uh, she could have some say as to as to what. I would bypass the commissioners because, like I said, they're all just developers, so they're not going to have any any say you, unless you know them personally. Uh, you can't really get them on the phone. But her number up in Tallahassee is eight five zero. that might be like their main number so I would start with them and then actually the next the next person might actually be I guess you could call Richard and see if there's anything that can be done I keep I keep any anytime I meet someone I keep their name and number, so I have like contacts that you never find online. Richard, so you Richard, could also call Richard Whitecloud. He's the one. He's the, he's he's the one with all the permits that FWC is trying to remove. Okay. Um, I wouldn't bother with Audubon because their group is no no real loss if they lose a permit. Uh, but his number is nine five four four zero four zero zero two five. And I would recommend when people call Richard, say, you know, you've, you've, been, you've, you've heard about this, you've read about this, it's in the news, it's an atrocity, what can they do? They do have a petition, so he can direct you to the website, which I think is Um, But we definitely need more signatures on the petition, and he might have someone else that you can call. He might have some more up-to-date information. Uh, What we really need to do, aside from the hatcheries, is we really need to be able to sue people that work for the government, like in civil court, individually. Not sue the entity, the agency, but sue the actual person that makes the decision, you know, that signs the permit or that um, refuses your funding. Those are the people that need to be held accountable. And a lot of times, as you know, these people work for the government to cover, as the cover, because they could not get away with this in any other area of society. So they think that they're above the law and they can just do whatever they want. But somebody needs to hold them accountable. Somebody definitely needs to hold them accountable.
2: Stacy, I can't thank you (laughs) enough. Uh, Turtles, as we know, have so much insults in their environment from not just the light pollution, the ocean pollution, the plastic pollution, uh, the global warming, which, you know, the human fingerprint is all over. Uh, there's so many challenges, and anything we can do to help our friends, uh, our, the creatures that we share the planet with is just wonderful. Thank you for your commitment to help save the, the final shreds of Florida's environment and, and the, the so important the sea turtle life. Um, any final thoughts you might want to share with people before we go? <laughs>
3: Uh, yes, actually, my, my final thought is um, I've always said I don't need permission from anyone to rescue an animal in need. Least of all, an agency actively destroying uh, not just those species, but the people trying to save them. So I would say to you and anybody else, if you see, and this isn't just a future hashing, this is any animal. If you see an animal in need, you need to rescue them, because if you don't, nobody else will. And no, you don't need permission. That's just government brainwashing you and thinking, oh, you can't do their job. They don't do their job. They don't want you to do their job. So if you don't rescue the animal, nobody else will. I'll tell you one positive thing.
2: Over the years, I lived in Florida about 40 years. And I tell you, the last 10 years, I have seen more cars pull over to help a turtle across a street, across a street, road right. than I'd ever seen in my life before. And I and it whenever I see it, it just makes me it just makes me so happy. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Stacy, go in peace, my friend. I know you're gonna continue to do good work no matter what the bureaucrats do. So thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Bye bye.
0: That is.
1: And we're here with Janine Maloff this week talking about the corruption of Joe Manchin and uh, how he's getting an assist from the Chamber of Commerce and ALEC. Hey, Janine, welcome.
4: Thank you, Brooke. And it's just like you said, you could title this the nubile corruption of Joe Manchin, except there's nothing nubile about him. So this segment is all about corruption, rabid wholesale corruption in the United States. And there's quite a bit of it. This first episode deals with the corruption of alleged Democrat, Joe Manchin, and also to some degree, another alleged Democrat, Kirsten Cinema, But we'll focus more prominently on the self-appointed ringleader, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, whose mantra is bipartisanship, which, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, is just, in my opinion, is just conservative code for unilateral surrender on the part of progressives and others who actually defend democracy. So let's look at Manchin's vapid claims and excuses. Now, Joe Manchin's never been concerned about bipartisanship or democracy. He's always been, right here, Alex Boyd. And Joe Manchin gets an assist, he's been servicing, if you will, and if you hear kind of an implied sexual innuendo there, it was intentional. Joe Manchin has been servicing, if you will, ALEC, which is an acronym for the American Legislative Exchange Council, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and occasionally the Koch brothers as well. Um, To put it bluntly, essentially, in my opinion, Joe Manchin hasn't found a political pimp he wouldn't work for. So so Joe Manchin's been the water boy for these billionaire bosses and their lobbyists working behind the scenes since the 90s. Manchin's called for bipartisanship is merely a mantra used to defend what is essentially stonewalling any true progress, including political and economic justice, as this bipartisanship merely maintains the logjam that is the status quo, which solely benefits the billionaire class and corporations. But let's start, let's do the history. Let's begin with his decades, as in plural, decades-old relationship with a group called Alex a.k.a. the American Legislative Exchange Council. Uh, ALEC is run from the offices of a high-profile corporate law firm by the name of Shook, Shook Hardy, and Bacon. ALEC brands itself as an educational resource, and, and you can practically see the air quotes, okay, indicating disbelief. In truth, ALEC is a bill mill and a lobby group. Now, a bill mill, can I ask you, what is that? A bill mill... Basically, it constitutes a group of attorneys who pre-write proposed legislation that corporate demands. It's basically eh, a litigious cheat sheet for lazy and stupid legislators. And yes, I did intend that alliteration. Basically, Alec hands a fill-in-the-blank form that has the legislation intact and only requires the legislator, to fill in their name as sponsor and the name of the state. So the first document I have is a document that was republished on what's called the Brick House. The article was originally published in Sludge. And this documents how Joe Manchin has always been Alex Boy to the present day. And when I call him Alex Boy, do I mean that in that insulting sense? Yes, I do. So this was written by David Moore for Sludge uh, about a week or two ago, June 8th. The headline reads, former Alex State Chair Joe Manchin continues to do the group bidding. Now, people don't remember this, but Joe Manchin wasn't always a U.S. senator. He actually served in his home state of West Virginia in the state-level legislature. And at one point, he actually was – this is ironic – the secretary of state, I believe, which basically runs the voting processes. He went on to become governor of West Virginia. And then finally he made it to Congress. So he is the ultimate insider. So this guy for Sledge wrote this, and, you know, he's talking about the fact that congressional congressional district maps, all right, for the entire country are going to shape politics for a decade, and they will. Well, the average person doesn't understand how this works. When they district. this is how they carve out, like, for instance, in my home state of Missouri, this is how they carve out really insane-looking districts in order to make sure that certain voters can keep a certain politician in power. And that's that gerrymandering nonsense. So, you know, the writer of this article, Moore's thing basically, well, the Democrats have a major reform bill, okay, that's – the uh, that's the for the people act which does propose independent commissions to keep these redistricting maps fair mansion has basically uh established himself as the king to war against the adoption of non-partisan redistricting so uh, pushed himself to the idea that he's so for bipartisanship but then he's against a bill that would protect, you know, the voting process that would be essentially nonpartisan. So, and I think sometimes people confuse the idea of nonpartisan with bipartisan. Nonpartisan meaning that it is equally established both sides and there's no one group that gets favored. Bipartisan is saying at least one group compromises maybe both to come up to a conclusion, but it's not an equal represent. When you do bipartisan, it's, it's almost like any partnership. It's never truly equal. So over the weekend, a week or so ago, Mansion basically threw a monkey wrench into the For the People Act, the hopes that this bill would pass. Um, he went and he wrote an op-ed to the, uh, the Charleston Gazette Mail, And he described his opposition to the For the People bill. And one of the things he wrote, quote, this is from the op-ed, quote, I believe that partisan voting legislation will destroy the already weakening signs of our democracy. And for that reason, I will vote against the For the People Act. Furthermore, I will not vote to weaken or eliminate the filibuster, end quote. All right. So at this point, people are wondering, what does that have to do with calling Joe Manchin out? as corrupt. The fact is this, the way power is established in our country isn't this exciting process where the balloons are flying and the speakers railing on about, you know, the values of democracy. It happens in back rooms in committee where they do this numbers game and they draw these maps to pretty much ensure that certain candidates get to stay in office. Um, and it has everything to do with redistricting. It has, including drawing districts where, for instance, progressives have no chance of winning. And it has everything to do also with the idea of the filibuster. As long as the silent filibuster remains intact, then any reform that we try and pass will never pass. It just takes one Republican to say, nope, I'm threatening a filibuster, and now it has to go to a majority vote. of 60 votes, which is almost impossible to do in the U.S. Senate. So the idea of redistricting and having a voting rights act that has teeth to it and the idea of ending the silent filibuster has everything to do with corruption because the aforementioned group, ALEC, for instance, has a long history of sponsoring and and writing all these bills that interfere with voting rights, especially the voting rights of minorities, the voting rights of young people, anyone who wouldn't vote the straight corporate ticket that the GOP pushes. So it's everything to do with it. And Joe Manchin has been basically carrying the water for them. So Manchin has his own big lie. He keeps calling S1, in other words, the For the People Act partisan. And the implication, he's implying that by calling it partisan, it's unfair, that it's unjust. And that's not what partisan means. And there's nothing wrong with having your own side. That's what partisan means. But Manchin has basically given it a dirty veneer. You know, it's like any any gossip, okay? That's what Manchin's doing. He's just mudslinging. But he's doing it in a very sneaky way. So Manchin, was, his, his op-ed echoes the objections From major conservative groups that want to hinder voting rights, like the Heritage Foundation, like ALEC, like the co-constructed Americans for Prosperity, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Manchin's been doing the dirty work for the GOP and corporate Dems for quite a long time, and he's doing it again by blocking the For the People Act in a U.S. Senate that is evenly divided right now. So the, and they can the minority can filibuster and nothing comes to pass. Huh? In fact, while Manchin blocked the For the People Act, this Right of the Sludge publication noted uh, excuse me, that the For the People Act is supported by this large coalition of over 200 organizations and it's also defended by over 100 scholars of democracy, as uh, documented by the Washington Post, Nanshin was also furthering the policies of Alec. And again, this name keeps popping up. Alec is an op- organization that operates in secret. They write these. Every time you hear of a voter suppression act, like we had, in, like we have in Georgia now, and in other states, the original bill for these objective actions, was written by the lawyers of ALEC, period. In fact, ALEC's website had something to say on for the People Act, and they claimed that it would, quote, exacerbate partisanship. So if Republicans have a right to be partisan, don't Democrats and progressives have a right to be partisan, that's just saying that you're defending your own interests. Reports also revealed, and this included a group called Documented.net, that ALEC created a secret working group in 2019 that really brought in conservative experts that re- on gerrymandering and voters' suppression. And Americans for Prosperity, which is a libertarian group funded by the Kochs, also claimed the bill would ramp up polarization. So Manchin and his buddies are equating partisanship with polarization, but that's not necessarily true. So what does ALEC do on gerrymandering and how has, and again, Manchin keeps defending them. So in 2018, how does ALEC do this? 2018, ALEC um, had a draft resolution and this was documented by reedsludge.com, which, quote, reaffirming the right of state legislatures to determine electoral districts. Keep in mind, the Voting Rights Act that had a big part of it snapped down by the Supreme Court in 2013 had to come about because quite a few states the scream states' rights. They wanted to control their electoral process, and that electoral process included vote massive voter suppression against progressives especially communities of color and other groups that they figured would not vote republican okay fact is these states can't be trusted um, gerrymandering of congressional districts but according to alec as documented by the new york times could bring enough republicans into into the house of representatives to quote flip the chamber in the 2022 midterm, and that was also according to um, Samuel S. Wang, director of the Princeton Gerrymandering Project. The For the People Act also has several provisions or parts that ban partisan gerrymandering. So this is why Manchin and Alec are against it. The For the People Act has several things in it, several provisions that would outlaw gerrymandering, and that includes the following. Uniform rules for drawing districts, stronger protections for minority communities, and a requirement that states use independent commissions to draw maps, okay? That last part's really important. If you have independent commissions drawing these these districting maps, then a lot of this nonsense will stop. It just will. They won't be able, here in Missouri, in the third Missouri district. We had a district that went from St. Louis, parts of St. Louis City, all the way out to, I think it was Jefferson County. It was this long skinny strip and it was was drawn that way to keep certain politicians in power. That is ludicrous. These districts should just be drawn by population period. So that independent commissions is super important. And you never should give that up. There was an analysis conducted by the Brennan Center for Justice. And the Brennan Center is nonpartisan. Um, and according to the analysis that they conducted, there was an April poll. Um, okay, I'm sorry, let me back up here. Okay, so these provisions on HR1, okay, the uniform rules for drawing districts, the stronger protections for minority communities and a requirement that states use independent commissions to draw maps, that was all documented by the Brennan Center in an analysis they did, okay? There was also, so sorry for that. Um, There was also an April poll, and it was released by a group called N. Citizens United. And what they found was that in Manchin's own home state of West Virginia, where Manchin claimed his constituents agree with him, this particular poll said otherwise. This said that 76% of Republicans and 79% of independent voters in West Virginia support the For the People Act. Poor Joe got caught in the lie. The group End Citizens United um, has spent quite a bit of money on a nationwide campaign in support of this bill. They have to because they're up against the other big money. So ALEC has been behind a lot of these voter suppression bills. They've written quite a few of them. What they do is ALEC writes a prototype. The prototype bill hands it over to these legislators in in different states. They might tweak the language a little bit. They fill in the blanks. They add their names. Boom. So these voter suppression bills and gerrymandering bills, majority of them come straight from ALEC. So this is why Manchin's involvement in ALEC is so utterly vile and corrupt. And he has old ties to Alex. It turns out that when he was on the rise in West Virginia, so he was elected governor in '4 before winning a Senate special election in 2010. But in 1994, Mansion was a state senator. In addition, while Mansion was a state senator, he was also Alex West Virginia state chairman and an Alex National Director. So he was intimately involved and has been since the 90s. And there was a recorded conference brochure that the writer of this article got a hold of and also flattered him. It said, quote, in addition to his lawmaking duty, dating back to this is the 94, in addition to his lawmaking duties, Senator Manchin is a businessman and owner of Enter Systems, a private company dealing with the natural resources of West Virginia. This is when he was a state senator. Okay. Enter um, systems is privately held brokerage, coal brokerage at Manchin founded in 88. He gave control of it to his son right as he was appointed right as he was elected to Secretary of State in 2000. So Manchin knows about running elections. So and he continues to hold non-public stock. Um, So, you know, once again, Manchin's been, according to West Virginia Sierra Club Club chapter, he's been, quote, nothing but a mouthpiece for the coal industry his whole public life. But to add more to it, Manchin has maintained ties to ALEC during his tenure as a U.S. Senator. Okay. He's listed on a version of ALEC's webpage, one that goes back to 2017, uh, according to ALEC's own internet archival records. He's also been a participant in, in Alex Federal Relations Program, and that is a program that's designed to, quote, facilitate work between state ALEC members and alumni who have joined the U.S. Congress, okay? So, again, all these voter suppression bills, the prototypes were written by ALEC, and Joe Manchin has been basically serving ALEC since the 90s, okay? Um, Manchin also, um, you know, basically has received sizable campaign contributions, not only um, help from Alec, but he's also received contributions from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, including recently, in fact suspiciously immediately after opposing the $15 an hour minimum wage raise. And that was along with Kirsten Cinema, another alleged Democrat. So, you know, once again, as documented by Reuters, quote, Manchin was recently rewarded with a campaign contribution from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for opposing a $15 minimum wage push. Okay. Add to it also, recently, Manchin was a headliner in a conference for his group called the National Restaurant Association, and he mocked the proposal. Okay. He mocked the idea of $15 an hour, and this was as recorded by Jacobin Meg. Um I'm sorry. So let me back up here a little bit. Um, so Manchin is really, he's been basically pushing the agenda of Alec. Um, you know, he's gone on record as being against uh, any sort of reform ending the silent filibuster, which requires 60 votes to override, uh, which basically means even if Manchin said, okay, I'm for the For the People Act, he could actually get away with that in theory while still making sure that ending the filibuster never happened because then the Republicans would just say, oh, we're going to do a silent filibuster, and the For the People Act never passes. So, but he's made sure that he's really beaten it to death. So Manchin wrote about his um, his own voting rights legislation, uh, which was supposed to be amending the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. But once again, it's still weakened. All right. Um, and then he talks about his alleged principles of bipartisanship. Okay. So, these conservatives love to talk about the Constitution and the original document. In fact, we're in the Constitution is, is it mentioned that there are principles of bipartisanship. So basically, um, Manchin's op-ed uh, basically said that his hands were effectively tied. In other words, there was nothing he could do about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act or the For the People Act or anything because... He's bound by these these invisible principles by partisanship. So as long as there's not a single Republican that will vote to support the For the People Act, known as S-1, then there's nothing he can do. And there's a quote from him, quote, The truth, I would argue, is that voting in election reform that is done in a partisan manner will all but ensure partisan divisions continue to deepen. Yeah, so the divisions will deepen. Well, it'll deepen as the GOP seeks to condemn the rest of us to poverty and death from lack of health care. Frankly, I don't care about this bipartisanship. I didn't vote for Bernie, for instance, because I wanted bipartisanship. So let's talk about Alex ties to voter suppression and Joe Manchin's ties to Alec. Just this past year, there are over 100 Alec-tied, Alec-aligned politicians who introduced nearly 400 bills that would basically increase voter suppression in almost every state in the union. This was documented by the Center for Media and Democracy. there's Their, their think tank called Exposed, and also documented, once again, by the nonpartisan Brennan Center. ALEC also had a secret working group on redistricting, in other words, gerrymandering, and it was led by GOP attorney and Trump supporter, Cleta Mitchell, as well as Heritage Foundation's Hans von Spankowski. Now, Spankowski recently told some people at a private uh, gathering, as documented by The Intercept, quote, that, quote, expanding voting rights and nonpartisan redistricting could imperil GOP political power. Okay, he's just, Spankowski's just saying straight up, of course we don't want to expand voting rights. Then we'd be voted out of office, okay. Alex' legislation spreads intimidation tactics, and that will be described in the next document. All right. And some of these intimidation tactics, especially against communities of color, have to do with poll watching and having police at the polls. You see a lot of that in Missouri. So mansions lies about bipartisan bipartisanship look a lot like that old Charlie Brown saga, you know, where Lucy's holding the football. And she said, I won't pull it out. I won't pull it out from you, Charlie. And Charlie Brown, the sappy is, believes her every time. She pulls it out, and he falls flat on his ass. That's what Manchin does to the Democrats every single time. And they fall for it because there's still quite a few corporate Democrats that really don't want progressive reforms at all. And so Manchin provides them their excuse. But... You know, Manchin also said recently he wouldn't weaken the filibuster. You know, he claimed that, oh, my God, he was was not going to endanger democracy. Okay. Question. How is maintaining the silent filibuster, which gives any senator, but usually on the GOP side, an unconstitutional veto over a simple majority vote? How is that protecting democracy at all? It's not. Um, And, you know, Manchin didn't always vote this way. And, you know, he did appear to support reforming Senate rules in 2011. What changed? You know, in 2011, according to documentation by the Brick House, Manchin voted with, quote, 47 of them, 53 Democratic-aligned senators to support quite a few Senate rules changes that did pass uh such as quote ending secret holds and falling tactics um so what happened well we don't know for sure i would just say the brides increased but that's my opinion and then just this past week manchin had a scheduled meeting he met with NAACP reps and other black leaders again and then he met with leaders from the National Urban League the NAACP and leadership conference on civil and human rights And they were all there to discuss voting rights protections. Just another smokescreen. He totally played them. And those leaders left totally um, disgusted. Now, next week, the Poor People's Campaign, under Reverend Barber, are going to march. There's a holy march in West Virginia. There's a march on Manchin's office. And one of the things they're complaining about is mansion support from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, and its position on blocking S-1 before, before the People Act. And well, you have to realize this, whether I'm talking about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or ALEC or any of these other groups, Heritage Foundation, they all work together. They have a million different little names, but at the end of the day, their intention is to make sure that only certain people vote, that only the people that that will vote the GOP corporate way will be allowed to vote and will have their votes counted. That's what it is. Um, According to this particular piece, uh, there was an inquiry at Manchin's Senate office about his ALEC participation as well as his views on S-1 and especially on the nonpartisan redistricting provisions Manchin's office did not respond. So now we have another piece here. And this is how Joe Manchin mocked Bernie's $15 an hour minimum wage uh, bill at a lobbyist event just this past April. And this was written by Joel Warner and Andrew Perez. Both Manchin and Kirsten Sinema were at this closed door event and it was with uh, this lobbyist, this restaurant lobbyist group, the National Restaurant Association. And, you know, Manchin basically said the minimum wage shouldn't be more than $11. And there still should be a wage that is sub-minimum for tipped workers. And the National Restaurant Association's main lobbyist was thrilled. Uh, This guy named Sean Kennedy, um, and he basically said, quote, from your lips to God's ears. And Kennedy is the National Restaurant Association's Executive Vice President of Public Affairs. Um, And he was in this panel titled, quote, Seeking Unity, Conversations on Finding Bipartisan Solutions. It should be noted that Sean Kennedy was a former Obama administration staffer. So there's, you know, the revolving door again. So the NRA, not the gun one, but the Restaurant Association, according to these writers, has been leading the charge to block any sort of federal living wage. And they've also been fighting um, to make it easy. They've been fighting also against um, workers forming unions in their restaurants as well. So Manchin was just mocking Bernie, all right, Um, You know and that's what the nra again this restaurant association group this was this event was billed as off the record and closed to the press and it was part of the association's annual quote public affairs conference which means that it was basically created for lobbyists and focused on what they call shaping legislation they words, forcing it down our throats um cinema gave a talk and Kennedy praised her as a true moderate. And cinema gave the usual nonsense. My approach has always remained the same. I promised Arizonans that I would do things differently than someone in Washington and that I would be an independent voice for our state, not for any political party, end quote. Um, you know, once again, apparently Kirsten's a little confused. If you run as a Democrat, then you're supposed to actually work as a Democrat. But once again, the hypocrisy here is beyond belief. Manchin gave his talk, and he really took a pot shot at Bernie. Manchin's own words, quote, We've been having meetings on minimum wage, and I can't for the life of me understand why they don't take a win on $11. Bernie Sanders is totally committed in his heart and soul that $15 is the way to go. Well, it might be the way to go, Bernie, but it ain't going to go. You don't have the votes for it. It's not going to happen. So you're going to walk away, so they're going to walk away with their pride, saying we fought for 15, got nothing. Uh, and then, you know, the end quote. So the Manchin also said that there were some other Democrats that agreed with him. My response is, fine, let's identify those other Dems that agree with Joe Manchin and Alec and kick them out of office. Let's end this. So Manchin went on to say, quote, about tip you know about basically this minimum wage issue again quote if it comes down to one person i don't believe it should be above eleven dollars i don't think the tip wage should ever go above half of that okay end quote so once again this is not surprising um and then sean kennedy who is with the national restaurant association gushed about mansion he said quote you and your staff have been absolutely amazing in working with small businesses including the national restaurant association and finding a common sense path so we can wrap up that aspect by just saying thank you end quote okay first of all the national restaurant association is not a small business secondly um apparently mansions dc staff will listen to lobbyists but they never answer the phone you'll always get a recording and there's no way to reach a staffer i know i've tried multiple times I mean, Joe and I have this non-existing relationship on the phone. All righty. So, you know, again, Sean Kennedy, who is with this conservative group now, previously served in the Obama White House as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And he's become the public face of massive corporate, this massive corporate fight against a living wage. Okay. And um, one of the excuses is that it would be too expensive, but groups like McDonald's and Denny's and the Cheesecake Factory have indicated to their investors that increasing minimum wage wouldn't be such a burden. Okay. And Joe Manchin once again reiterated this opposition to eliminating the filibuster. Um, and this is the quote that Manchin, was what Manchin said, quote, at the same meeting, Quote, well, you get rid of the filibuster and we will not be the country we are for this reason. You'll have the violent swings, the extreme swings every time there's an election, whichever party is in power. It will be no different than a lot of European countries are, no different than a lot of developing countries. It's whoever's in power and basically it swings. Everything's thrown out and started over. We have been a country and grown as a country with consistency of people could depend on, end quote. Yeah, because the Trump years were so calm, and there was no violence during Trump. Again, that's extreme sarcasm on my part. Um, Again, that's Manchin's excuse. So Manchin is against reforming or ending the filibuster. He's also against the PRO Act. Now, the PRO Act is considered a landmark labor reform legislation, uh, according to Daily Poster, which is David Sirota's um, Charles David Soroto's publication. Um, labor activists, according to this, were thrilled because Manchin, about a week ago Monday, said he would co-sponsor the Democrats', quote, labor reform legislation, the PRO Act, um, and that he's only one of three Democrats, and basically meaning that now only three Democrats have not signed on to the bill, and cinema's one of the holdouts. but, Manchin can do that and not risk anything, including his, you know, favored uh, status with, um, with the Chamber of Commerce, with Alex, because, because Manchin makes sure that the filibuster will never be ended. It is highly unlikely the PRO Act will, will be passed at all in any form. There's basically no chance that 10 Republicans will support the legislation. So, of course, Manchin can make these, these nonsense statements going full well he'll never have to back them up. Okay, and, and Sinema's excuse is, quote, what I'm telling my colleagues is that we cannot accept a new standard by which important legislation only passes on party-line votes. If we were to accept that, it would set the stage for permanent partisan dysfunction. It would deepen the divisions that exist within our country, and it would further erode Americans' confidence in their guns in their government which we know is a challenge we already face we face already okay so the republicans never pass anything on party only votes of course they do right. so is kirsten and joe both both saying that we have to beg the greedy gop for some gr- crumbs we have to appease our abusers you know her statement is so vapid it's beyond belief the Republicans pass legislation on party-only only votes all the time. But that's what happens. And again, when you have deep ties to these groups like ALEC and the Chamber of Commerce, you've already sold out because ALEC and the Chamber of Commerce have made no secret what they're about. Now, in the report called Exposed by CMD, which is the Center for Media and Democracy, there was a report on voter suppression and other attacks on democracy sponsored by Alec and Manchin's long ties to that lobby group. And Manchin's ties to Alec are relevant. It's, it's relevant to his interference with the For the People Act. And so let's talk about it now. And this article is titled, uh, this study rather, Lawmakers and Corporate, um, Alec, Lawmakers and Corporate Pay for Play Network push bills aimed at intimidating voters of color and it's written by Alex Koch, uh, and it is a month old, May 19th, 21. So it describes how um, all over the country, getting ready for the midterms, really, and for 24, you have Republican state legislators in states where the GOP dominates the state legislation, the state, the state houses and the state senate, and they are tied to the to Alec the American Legislative Exchange Council which is corporate funded where does Alec from Schuckhardt and Bacon get their money they get it from corporations paying dues okay and Alec is pushing to loosen restrictions on poll watching which is used to intimidate especially voters of color especially black Americans all right and it's done in multiple ways, including having police, off-duty police stationed at the poll, questioning Blacks as they approach. It happens here in Missouri all the time. I've witnessed it myself. So the poll-watching initiatives are part of a much broader scheme, all right? And the scheme is, de- is designed to suppress voting rights of anyone that's not going to vote Republican and corporate. And the Republican party has used poll watching as an intimidation tactic. And that poll watching has a particularly notorious history according to this report. And, and it was so notorious that it was prohibited in 1982 by a federal judge who brokered what's called a consent degree, a decree and this was according to the Brennan center. Um, this is an agreement between the Republican and Democratic national committees in 82. And it barred the GOP from doing any sort of what they call ballot security type tactics. Um, It also barred them from any voter intimidation tactics without prior judicial approval. Before that happened in 82, the RNC had hired off-duty police officers fully armed to patrol these precincts that were mainly minority precincts. And these cops, these off-duty cops, wore these armbands that said National Ballot Security Task Force. So people were terrified. black community has good reason to be terrified of cops. And now they have this, which blocked them from voting. And it worked quite well here in Missouri. Um, and this particular decree, first of all, the RNC did violate it several times but it did remain in place until 2018 when the courts allowed it to expire. Um, we know that Donald Trump threatened to send out poll watchers heavily armed to minority precincts. Um, and then as of April 15th state lawmakers introduced at least at least 40 bills in 20 states, according to the Brennan center, to grant poll watchers more powers. And that was according to the Brennan center. Um, there are at least 80 Alec lawmakers, there's, there's at least 80 lawmakers that are tied to Alec that are co-sponsors of 21 of those 40 bills in nine states, and that was according to the Center for Media and Democracy. CMD also reported that over 100 Alec politicians, no politicians that are affiliated with Alec, um, led voter suppression efforts in battleground states. Again, by CMD. So don't believe the lie, the top corporations, that's the other thing too, in in retaliation, the top corporations that basically publicly opposed voter suppression, okay, when this story first broke, according to the AP. Um, And they said, no, no, we're opposing voter suppression. Some of these corporations cut their affiliation with ALEC. Um, You know, keep in mind, it's been corporate money that has bankrolled state lawmakers who back these measures. So if they weren't sending the same corporation, instead of paying it directly to ALEC, they were paying, they were bankrolling politicians that were affiliated with ALEC and doing ALEC's bidding. Okay? So it's still pay to play, and this is dark money. It's harder to identify, harder to politically retaliate against, like with boycotts. Um, this is why these corporations the dark money, they don't want uh, the public to know that they're bankrolling these kind of politicians because they could institute boycotts. So, they hide behind dark money, but again, they're giving money to politicians that are doing Alex bidding. Same thing. Okay. Alex claimed it was out of the voter suppression scheme. Don't believe it. Um, in 2012, Alec claimed that the group did disband that part, and this is according to CBS News, that they call their public safety and elections task force because there was a lot of backlash from the public and the corporations withdrew their memberships, about 40 of them, Um, and this was uh, regarding voter ID and stand your ground laws. But then over the last two years, ALEC very quietly got back into the game. They created a secret working group to push voter suppression in 2019. And that was as reported by Documented.net. They brought in right-wing leaders and lawyers. They coached legislative members on voter suppression and gerrymandering tactics. The secret group was led by Cleta Mitchell, who's a GOP lawyer, who also took part in Trump's efforts to force Georgia to flip their election results, as well as Arizona State Rep. Shauna Bolick. Alex, CEO Lisa Nelson sent an email explaining the new sneaky move, quote, the issues we plan to cover include but are not limited to election law and ballot integrity, campaign finance, electoral college, redistricting and citizen vote questions, end quote. Now this was in an email that invited uh, legislators secretly to join their group. And that was according to um, document, document cloud. Heritage foundation which is also tied it's also uh, affiliated with these groups Hans van Spakovsky helped vankowski is quote a leading purveyor of the voter fraud myth according to the New Yorker he's also the mastermind according to mother Jones of the far rights uh, massive voter suppression drive he took part in a private panel of the Alec working group about redistricting in 2019 documented, reported, um, and again, another event, uh, Alex secretive exclusive call, okay? Um, so Spankowski's involved as well. Um, there was a secret call about mail-in voting last June, and this was with a former Republican Federal Election Commission official, as well as the Honest Elections Project which was also previously known as the Judicial Education Project. This was documented by Sourcewatch. Honest Elections Project. Gee, someone has a delicious sense of irony. Anyway, um, all of this, this Honest Elections Project was funded, um, was basically a dark money funded group. It was led by Heritage Foundation alumni, Jason Sneed. in December, the working group convened again. The attendees included Spakowski, Jay Christian Adams, as well, who's a voter suppression activist with the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Um, so, you know, basically, ALEC has been in the business of voter suppression and voter intimidation, especially of minorities, for a very long time, okay? And why, so part of it is, it pleases the biggest in our midst, but mainly because they know Majority of black voters will vote Democratic. So, okay. There was video evidence leaked earlier this year, documented by Mother Jones, and this was a private meeting with um, Heritage Foundation donors and was obtained by documented and reported by Mother Jones. And this is the one that went viral online. It shows Heritage Action Executive Director Jessica Anderson, um, describing this process that almost, almost duplicates Alec's approach to basically obtaining corporate uh, corporate goals. Uh, and she's talking about the bill mill thing that Alec does, quote, in some cases we actually draft in parentheses the bills for them, or we have a sentinel on our behalf, give them the model legislation. So it has that grassroots from the bottom up type of vibe. And that was the, you know, video that really circulated. And as for poll watching, well, I described that, all right. It has an intimidation factor. The idea is to scare communities of color from voting. And so there were many bills that ALEC helped, helped write or did write. Um, Ben Jellis, president of the organization People for the American Way, told the Center for Media and Democracy about this. He said, quote, poll watching as a general premise is not a bad idea, but the reality is that poll watching orchestrated by the right has translated to voter intimidation of black voters throughout the decades. Poll watchers deployed to scare away voters of color have often been armed and violent dating back to the 19th century, end quote. And that's what it does. And these bills, again, they all go back to Alex for the majority of them, omnibus, omnibus excuse me, omnibus bills in Georgia, SB 2020, that the governor signed into law, SB 7 in Texas. Um, you know, these are the, among these laws are the ones to criminalize giving somebody standing in line voting to vote a, a cup of water even. Um, you know, once again, This is, you know, Ben Jealous goes on to say, quote, it comes as no surprise that we see ALEC lurking behind these poll-watching bills just has been shown to be part of the cross-country push for voter suppression laws. In order to advance their deregulatory agenda, which serves the interests of corporations, the corporations ALEC needs legislatures willing to pass it. When black and brown people vote in high numbers they did in the Georgia Senate runoff, the seating of a hard-right deregulatory legislature becomes less likely black people know how deregulation has worked out for them. It has poisoned black neighborhoods and shaken down black people with shady financial products, end quote. And he's quite right. And there's a list of it. Um, You know, again, these particular tactics still trace back to ALEC, as well as the Chamber of Commerce. And this is something that really attacks democracy. So when Joe Manchin claims that he is so defensive of, he de- wants to defend democracy, it's nonsense. All right? It just is. And Manchin has a long affiliation with ALEC. There's no excuse here. He's, he's no Democrat. He never was. Uh, and there's some other politicians as well. Uh, ALEC alumni in Congress, in the U.S. Senate, most of them are Republicans. Um, Senator Mike Enzi, Cory Gardner, Lindsey Graham, James Inhofe, John Kyle, Joe Manchin, the one Democrat, Jerry Moran, Jim Risch, Marco Rubio, Richard Shelby, and Roger Wicker, and it goes on. In the House, again, people like Marsha Blackburn, okay, um, Jim Jim Jordan, Steve King, Blaine Lipschmeyer. And it goes on and on and on. Okay. The fact is these people have corrupted themselves. And there's another article here. This is a really good one. This is by John Nichols. And it was in The Nation. And the title is Alex Corporate Funders are Complicit in State-Based Assaults on Voting Rights and Democracies. More than 300 voting rights groups and their allies demand the corporations cut ties with the American Legislative Exchange Council, Alex. John Nichols. Um, is a phenomenal journalist. Um, he's written multiple books and we're just going to go into it. So even after the January 6th insurrection, um, there was movement. Okay, so after January 6th, you had some CEOs of some corporations distance themselves from members of Congress that not only voted to decertify the Electoral College results, but these were also Politicians tied to Alec, okay? Um, And, you know, once again, it made it look like, okay, corporations have seen the light. It's not true. Okay, it's just not true. Um, Arne Pearson, who's the executive director of the Center for Media and Democracy, which I've been quoting quite a bit of CMD, the Watchdog Watchdog Group, um, you know, put it quite succinctly. He said, quote, Alec its partisanship and pay to play over principle. So it's no surprise that they have fully embraced the doctrine of racist and undemocratic voter suppression to preserve GOP minority rule. Pearson went on to say, quote, corporations that are serious about fair elections should publicly denounce Alex voter suppression efforts and quit the organization, end quote. And there were more than 300 voting rights organizations and allies that agreed with them, including Common Cause, Public Citizen, Fair Fight Action, Color of Change, AFL-CIO, and League of Women Voters. They all demanded the major corporations cut financial ties with ALEC. In other words, stop sending any sort of dues. Um, And they sent a letter, okay? And the letter very simply says, quote, Faced with public outrage over legislation that creates barriers to voting rights enacted or proposed in more than 47 states, and the bill's disproportionate impact on people of color, young people, and the elderly, hundreds of companies have publicly denounced any discriminatory legislation that makes it harder for people to vote. Perhaps your company is one of them." Uh, End quote. Uh, The letter goes on to say, nonetheless, your your participation in Alex serves to promote and legitimize the group's anti-democratic efforts to create more barriers to voting. And this letter went to various companies, including Anheuser-Busch, Blue Cross Blue Shield, CenturyLeak, Duke Energy, UI Lilly, FedEx, Coke Industries, Oracle, Raytheon, Salesforce, State Farm, and some others. Now Alec itself claims they're nonpartisan. Pure nonsense. Huh? Pure, pure nonsense. Um, short history of Alec. Again, the reason Joe Manchin's called out as corrupt in spite of his excuse about bipartisanship is because he has been affiliated with ALEC since the early 90s. There is no excuse. ALEC was founded in 73 by conservative activists, especially Paul Weyreich. Weyreich in 1980 as documented on a YouTube video, told a gathering of far religious right activists, quote, I don't want everybody to vote. Our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up, as the voting populace goes down, end quote. I think that says what you need to know. So ALEC has really infiltrated at the state level, okay? Um, according to their own task force, all right, quote, from their own website, comprised of nearly one quarter of the country's state legislators and stakeholders from across the policy spectrum. ALEC members represent more than 60 million Americans to provide jobs to more than 30 million people in the United States. Okay. But that's not benign. Common cause president Karen Hobert Flynn said the following quote, ALEC has a long history of rigging the rules against everyday Americans while skirting ex- ethics and tax laws. ALEC is working behind the scenes to restrict voting rights, end quote. So, We have other groups that have called them out as well. Cliff Albright, uh, executive director and co-founder of Black Voters Matter, was quoted um, as as basically saying, quote, we have repeatedly said that corporations must stop funding the elected officials who sponsor and vote for voter suppression. And this demand is equally important in regards to conservative groups and think tanks who fuel the Jim Crow era approach of creating and replicating racist legislation These companies cannot hide behind the excuse that they only support ALEC because of their pro-business legislation. Companies are complicit if they are creating a pro-business environment by supporting anti-democratic organizations and policies. We will continue to hold them accountable. It will not be business as usual until they stand up for what is right. And the fact is, ALEC does pose an existential threat to democracy itself. Joan mentioned long affiliation with ALEC and the way ALEC appreciates them is far more serious than just pursuing his own self-interest. It just is. Skipping ahead here, there was a piece um, by Igor Dirsch. Uh, again, Dirsch void, I'm sorry, this is in Salon. Uh, Dirsch pointed out that Joe Manchin hasn't just been Alex Boy, but it's also been the US Chamber of Commerce's boy as well. It's highly suspicious. This reversal on the voting rights bill um, follows a donation from that corporate lobby. And, you know, his op-ed that he wrote on the voting bill on S-1 echoed the very talking points of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Why is he echoing them? Now, you could say he argued that he agrees with them, but that's really a, the timing is suspicious. All right. Okay. So Manchin's timing of his op-ed, railing against the For the People Act, the timing's really suspicious, all right? Um, It came along right at the same time, right after the U.S. Chamber of Commerce resumed donations to Manchin's campaign after withholding donations for nearly a decade. Now, Manchin wasn't always like this. He changed, uh, and I really don't care why. So the fact is, Manchin has acted as basically the ventriloquist, like a ventriloquist dummy for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for ALEC, the Heritage Foundation, and so on. Um, And when he rails against reasonable, uh, reasonable attempts at accountability and transparency, such as demanded by S-1 or the For the People Act, such as demanding an end to the Unconstitutional filibuster. When well, he's echoing the exact talking points from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, as documented by Igor Dersh in Salon, as well as documented by Alex talking points as well, then he is the ventriloquist dummy, and it has to stop. Uh, the timing of that op-ed, just I- I'm sorry, when it, when the donation comes back that quickly, you know, it's bribery. Okay. Now it's funny because groups like Reuters didn't call it that. They just said, well, you know, it's, you know, just, they changed their mind. No, they didn't. All right. So we're going to skip ahead here. Manchin has old ties to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, just like Alec. His ties date back at least to 2010 when he was governor of West Virginia. Um, He even received an award from the Chamber of Commerce in 2019. uh, And it was the Spirit of Free Enterprise Award. Uh, And that they give the lawmakers who've supported the chamber's positions at least 70% of the time. So, again, and the Chamber of Commerce, like ALEC, like Heritage Foundation, all want to restrict voting rights. And they all want to make sure the filibuster never ends. So, this is why. And they know black voters are more suspicious of big business. So, they really crack down there. Uh, And this is what's happened. So, you know, once again, we have this nonsense going on. Um, you know, Accountable.us also points out they have a, a campaign called Drop the Chamber Campaign, and they're basically pushing businesses to basically drop their affiliation with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and that's corporates like Microsoft, Target, and Salesforce, and, and that needs to happen. So we have Joe Manchin, that's what really focused on today, who has these deep and long-established ties to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, to Alex two aspects of the Heritage Foundation, all three have worked feverishly to push bills that that sponsor massive voter suppression, to intimidate voters of color, and to back, and who support the um, silent filibuster, which makes sure that no real reforms take place. And why? Because this was a corporate-owned government. It's that simple. So why does the Democratic National Committee tolerate Joe Manchin, or for that matter, other traitors to democracy like Kirsten Cinema and others? Well, the answer might not be as obvious as previously thought. As long as Manchin, this is my opinion, as long as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and, and Senator Coons and Senator Hassan and a few others, but especially Manchin, do the heavy lifting, especially to keep the silent filibuster intact. And the other corporate Democrats, the other blue dogs, don't actually have to do anything. They can hand ring with the vets. say they're afraid of Mitch McConnell, and blame the GOP of Trump. But as you can see, corporate Democrats like Manchin leading the way with Cinema Kuhn, Sassan, and others, they're just as guilty. We have to reframe this argument. We can't allow the GOP of Trump, George W. Bush, and Reagan to define this moment and this issue. The issue of corruption, rabid wholesale corruption. The entire idea of a healthy democracy, whether direct or the representative form, which we call a republic, is to allow vigorous debate. Yes, from partisan points of view. This bipartisan excuse is intellectually corrupt and ethically bankrupt because it provides a garbage excuse to cowardly and or corrupt politicians who are fine with handing over a blank check to the billionaires and the corporate honchos and their corporate enablers, the lawyers of ALEC. This type of skullduggery is called corruption. It has two major components, one being a culture which tolerates open bribery of public officials by calling it campaign contribution, and the other being thinly veiled extortion coming from those same elected officials. When unelected persons commit these crimes, you or me, we're criminally investigated, charged, convicted, and incarcerated elected officials should be no different and the first one they need to investigate is joe Manchin, first trader from the left and that's my report
1: and that's it for us tonight i hope you enjoyed the show we'll see you again
0: next week